Well, good morning, Payson Bible Church. I will not be able to say that for, for too much longer. I've been doing some stuff online and ordering some things and using the name Orchard Hills Bible Church a lot more. So the days of Payson Bible Church are limited. So let's use that while we can. Um, I really do wish I could see you this morning, um, but this is the last week we have this planned. So next week we do plan to get back together here again with guidelines in place. Be looking at your email for, for more information on that. For now, go ahead and open up your Bibles. Even though you're not here, we still need to crack open God's holy word and appeal to it because it is our ultimate authority, as we will learn more next week when we start our series on the five solas. So we're going to be in Matthew 16 primarily this morning. But before that, I have a, a a thought for you, something I want you to, to ponder. I want you to think for a moment about who you are. Who are you? How might you describe yourself to, to somebody that you just met, maybe in an interview, maybe on a, a social media, Facebook type page? How do you describe yourself? I know that people often, again on social media, will describe themselves based on their relationships, perhaps as a, a mother or a father, as a husband or a wife, based on their, their relationships that they have with those who are closest to them. Or maybe you would describe yourself based upon what you do. If you are uh, a mechanic or an engineer, if you are um, a, a pilot or an artist, based upon what you might do, you might describe yourself. That's how you might identify yourself to, to somebody that you're, you're talking to, that you are introducing yourself to. Or your, your background or your beliefs. You might say, well, I'm, I'm Irish, I'm Welch, I'm Hispanic, um, I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican, a Democrat, independent. These different ways that we identify ourselves are important because it is important how we identify ourselves, how we understand ourselves to, to be, um, not just from our perspective, but how we want others to understand ourselves to be. But even more important than how we understand ourselves, even more important than our own identity, is who we understand Christ to be. Because who we understand Christ to be can have eternal ramifications. Our understanding of Christ's identity has infinite results and even affects our day-to-day -day life. And so today we're going to be talking about who is Jesus. What is his identity? How do we understand Christ? Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you are our Father, and I pray that you would, in fact, be our Father. I pray for those who, who might be watching, who, who don't know you, those who are children of, of the world, who are children of wrath, enemies of God, that they might be enlightened to your truth, that you might enlighten them and draw them to yourself. And God, for those of us who do know you, I pray that you would draw us into a deeper relationship with you, into a deeper understanding of who you are, of who Christ is and what he's done for us. God, I pray that as we crack open your word, that we would, we would have a, a better understanding of it, that you would speak to us through it, through your Holy Spirit. God, help us to be, um, to be able to, to focus and to pay attention. I pray that you would take away any distractions and that you would just illuminate your word for us this morning. God, I thank you for the truth that's found in it. I thank you for the technology that allows us to be together in some way, even though we're not physically together. God, I pray for your church, not just here in Payson, but around the world, that 
you would use your people to reach the world with your message of truth. God, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so if you've been going with us through the book of Acts, then you'll notice that one of the themes that we've been seeing through the book of Acts is how God is working through the gospel, through the Holy Spirit, among not just his Jewish people, but among the Gentiles also. And that's been an exciting thing to, to observe and to look at through Acts as we've seen the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius come to a, a saving knowledge of Christ. We've seen how Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles and Peter had this sheet dropped down out of heaven with so-called unclean animals and he was told, go and eat, symbolizing that salvation is not just for the Jew but for the Gentile as Paul writes in, in Romans 1, that it, we are saved by the, the truth of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is salvation for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. And while he expounds on this and kind of draws it out later on in, in Scripture, further into the New Testament in Ephesians 3, talks about this as being a, a mystery, something that was formerly unknown, that God has made clear and made known uh, through the church. In Romans, he speaks of the fact that we as Gentiles have been grafted into the, the tree of Israel, into the salvation that Israel has through Christ. And even in the Old Testament, we have little glimpses of of this mystery, of this truth that salvation is not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile also. Even in the line of Christ, we can see that people who weren't Jewish by, by nature, Jewish by blood, they came to a saving knowledge of God, and they were able to call the God of Israel their God. We see that with, with Rahab, who was, again, she was outside of the camp, and she was welcomed in. With uh, Ruth, who was a Moabite, and she was welcomed in. She was Again, in the lineage of, of Christ, she was the, the husband of Boaz. She was the grandfather of King David. And today, we're going to be, as we make our way to, to chapter 16, um, we're going to see more glimpses of how Christ is sharing this, this good news, how he is revealing himself to the people who, who aren't his chosen people, who aren't descendants of Abraham, but who he draws to himself nonetheless. So if you haven't already, again, open up to the book of Matthew in your Bibles. And I want to get a little bit of context and go back a little bit before we jump into chapter 16. So let's start in Matthew chapter 15. And in this chapter, we see right off the bat in, in verse 1 of chapter 15 that Jesus is engaging in some conversation with some Pharisees, with some scribes, and he's um, talking with them as he often does. And this conversation ends up with Jesus really pointing out their hypocrisy and really helping them to see that they are, are not believers, that they are unbelievers. And down in verse 7, he calls them out. He says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Again, this is common for, for Jesus to have this kind of encounter this kind of interaction with the the religious elite of the day right these pharisees these scribes these people who are really putting a lot of stock in in themselves in their own work in their own um offerings that they have to to bring before god uh, back in chapter 13 is where jesus said that uh, a prophet is not without honor except for in his own hometown and 
we're seeing that here at the beginning of Matthew 15. But later in, in Matthew 15, uh, we see that Jesus is he's going to kind of switch, switch frames a little bit. Down in verse 21, it says, Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So he's moving on to more Gentile, uh, predominantly Gentile populated areas. Verse 22, he encounters a Canaanite woman from that region. She came out and she began to cry out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And Jesus' response, the response of the, the loving, humble, meek Jesus that we know, he says, it says in verse 23, but he did not answer her. So he just completely ignores her. And he turns, he has a, a discussion with his disciples briefly, and, and they try to tell him to, to shoo her away. But in verse 24, he, he finally answers her. It says, but he answered and he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she, be and she began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Now listen to her response. This is a, a perfect rebuttal, a beautiful expression of her faith. She says, but... It says, but she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus blessed her. He commended her for her faith and healed her daughter in that moment. And Jesus' ministry among these, these Gentile people, it, it continues to be fruitful. It continues to, to produce, whereas before with the, the Jewish people that he was ministering amongst, they were not nearly as receptive as, as these people are. And so he heads up to the, the region of Decapolis, which is on the, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And in verse 31, it says that the crowds marveled as they saw the mute speaking and the crippled restored and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So God was, Jesus was, again, seeing fruit amongst these people. And he ends his time over in this region, this Gentile region, by taking seven loaves of bread and a few fish and feeding 4,000, again, predominantly Gentile men, along with women and children. And then he gets back on a boat and he heads across the Sea of Galilee back to the west side, which is predominantly populated by Jewish people. And right off the bat, in verse 16... It says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and they began testing Jesus and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now Jesus wasn't going to have any of that. Again, these are the, the same group of people, same sect of people who he had just rebuked not long before, before he left to this Decapolis region and came back. And he says, no, it's, a, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. I'm not going to give you a sign. And he kind of goes on. He really humbles these proud religious teachers and he says that you guys can go outside and you can look up in the sky and you can determine based on the color of the sky if it's going to rain that day or not you'll go out and you'll say oh look the sky is red there's going to be a thunderstorm today and yet you're unable to discern the signs of the times you're unable to discern the fact that you're sitting here talking to the messiah himself you're sitting here talking to god incarnate god in the flesh and and yet you can go outside and you can predict the weather you guys are better weathermen than you are theologians and you're sitting here asking me to give you a sign. I'm not going to appease you. I'm not going to 
appeal to your request for a sign. Instead, he, he uses this as an opportunity to teach his disciples and to pour into his disciples, these people who he has drawn to himself, these people who do know who he is, who do have eyes to see and ears to hear and have a humility about themselves. In chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Again, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these are people who are putting stock in themselves, in their own work, their own ability to, to please God, to be on a, a right standing with God. And Jesus says, that is, that's leaven. Um, we're told later on in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It doesn't take a whole lot of, of sin, of bad teaching, to really mess up somebody's whole doctrine, their whole theology, understanding of who God is. It's just a little bit of leaven that leavens that whole lump, that permeates and works through that whole lump. And the disciples, they weren't quite understanding. They were thinking that Jesus was talking about bread because they had spaced the fact that they needed bread and they didn't bring bread. Uh, down in verse 12, it says that finally the disciples understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It just takes a little bit of, of teaching, a little bit of, of false doctrine, false understanding of, again, the, the identity of Christ, who it is that Christ is, to really leaven that whole lump, to, to draw somebody out of the kingdom of heaven and for eternity to damn them into hell because they are having a, an uncorrect understanding of who Jesus is, of his identity, of the fact that he is sovereign, the fact that he is God. And we will continue to see that as we go throughout our passage. Um, but we see that even in our, our world today, and I think we need to understand that, that we can ace a theology test and we can still not know Jesus. We can spend our whole lives going to church, um, going to, to seminary as a, a junior high or a high schooler every single day, never miss a day, and we can think that we know who Jesus is, we can think that we know who God is, but if we don't have a correct understanding of who it is that he truly is, then we've missed the mark. It just takes a little bit of leaven to leaven that lump. Let's go ahead and jump into our, our passage here um, and continue to do a little bit of, of background. So we've seen that Jesus... Um, he was ministering among the, the Jewish people, and he had some, some rough encounters with them. He rebuked them harshly. He went and he had some fruitful ministry on the east side of Galilee among the Gentiles. Came back, and again, the, the Jewish religious elite people still continued to, to show that they don't know who Christ is. And now in, in verse 13, let's, do a, let's take a look at um, some historical background of this, this city that's mentioned here. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he's here in this district of, of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a, a different city, a distinct city from its, its more popular counterpart of Caesarea, which is farther down on the, the coastline. But Caesarea Philippi is still a, a pretty large city, and it's known for its sin. It's known for its immorality, for its idolatry, and they really seem to be proud of, of who they are in their sin. Not unlike our, our modern-day Las Vegas, Sin City, right? 
what happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi, and they're okay with that. They're not ashamed of that. They are about their sin. They're about embracing their sin and their idolatry. They have a a grotto, like a a hollowed-out cave in Caesarea Philippi, and they had taken and they had made a temple out of this cave. And this temple was dedicated to the worship and, and sacrifice to false gods, to gods like Echo and Pan and different goat-like deities who people would come in and they would offer sacrifices, they would worship them, these gods who aren't gods at all. Um, it was actually called the, the Gates of Hades, which is kind of interesting because when we get down into verse 18 and Jesus is talking about his church and introducing the church, this, this idea of the church for the first time, and he says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He says that while he's standing outside of this temple that is dedicated to the, the worship of false gods and false teachers. So that's kind of interesting. Also in Caesarea Philippi, they had a, a temple that, um, that Herod the Great had erected, and he had dedicated that to the worship of Caesar, trying to get on the good side of Rome. And this temple was known as the Pleasure Palace. And so I'm sure that you can imagine all the gross immorality that took place there in the name of worship, in the name of um, this man who was exalted as a god. Caesarea Philippi was a wicked, idolatrous, idolatrous, evil place. And it's right outside of this city that, that Jesus turns and he asks his disciples, these people who know him better than, than anybody else, who do people say that I am? And again, just thinking about the disciples and their ability to, to answer these questions. If you have a, a Bible that has the letters of Jesus in red, you'll see that Jesus asks two simple questions here. They're, they're simple yet deep and profound, but it's the disciples really who are doing the bulk of the speaking in this passage. And so if we just consider who are these disciples, what is their, their credibility like? What is the source of the information that we're getting in this passage? We can remember that these are men who ended up walking with Jesus for three years. These are men who Jesus himself handpicked as his disciples. He went and he called them to himself, told them to to lay down their nets, right, and follow after him. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, they were sitting at the feet of Jesus as he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the most popular sermon that was ever preached. They were there listening as, as Jesus was preaching. In Matthew 6, Jesus personally taught them how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, to have Jesus personally give you this, this template of prayer that would be amazing. And that was something that the, the disciples could claim for themselves. Uh, I just wanted to, to share with you a, a sampling of the things that they witnessed Christ do, the things that they saw Jesus do just in chapters 8 and 9. In chapter 8, they saw that Jesus healed a leper. They saw a centurion save be slave be healed from afar. Remember the, the master came and, and said, Jesus, I know that you can do it. And Jesus healed him from, from miles away. The disciples were there. They were witness to this. They saw as Peter's mother-in-law was healed of a fever. And then they saw that in, in chapter 8, verse 16, it says that when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were healed. So that's just kind of a, a blanket statement. He was going around. He was casting out demons, all the, the demons that were brought to him, and 
those who were sick were all healed. They were all made well. They were there when Jesus was rebuking the, the wind and the waves during that, that massive storm. And they turned, they asked one another, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And they watched as Jesus cast a legion of demons into a herd of pigs and they ran off a, into the, the sea and were drowned. In chapter 9, a paralytic was healed. Jairus' daughter was brought back to life and Peter and James and John were there to witness that. While they were on their way to, to go see Jairus' daughter, this woman came up who was hemorrhaging for 12 years and she was healed. They're watching all these different miraculous things that Jesus is doing. They're there. They're taking note of the fact that he healed two blind men. He cast a demon out of a, a sick woman. And then again, another blanket statement. Chapter 9, verse 35 says that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. So Jesus took them around as he was going and teaching in the synagogues and the villages. He was mentoring them. He was demonstrating to them exactly who he was. They had every right to answer who is Jesus. Not only who he is, but who do other people say that he was because they were traveling with him. They were walking along with him, seeing everything that he was doing, everything that he was going through. They were there and they were able to, to give a, a credible answer to these two questions that Jesus is asking one thing that I think we need to, to take note of, especially in, in our culture, in our situation right now, is that Jesus wasn't asking if people liked him. He wasn't asking what people thought about him. I know that most of us, if we would hear somebody say, oh, well, who does so-and-so say that I am? Or, you know, what, what do they say about me? That's, that's really what we would hear, that they would say, be asking what are they saying about me, probably from a, a perspective of pride or insecurity, wondering, do they like me? Are they okay with me? Um, or maybe you've heard somebody say, like, do you know who I am? Like, I'm somebody special. Um, we need to recognize Jesus isn't coming from either one of those perspectives. He's not seeking the, the accolades of people. He's not looking for their approval, for validation. He's not on some kind of ego trip. This is a matter of identity and not popularity. Jesus isn't out to win some popularity contest. He's not wondering if people are, are liking him. He wants to know if they know who he truly is. Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36, we really get a, a look at Jesus's, um, his motive, I guess. It says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, if Jesus is trying to, to make friends, that's not the way to do it. Um, but he's not out to, to win friends. He's out to, to share truth. He is the truth, and he wants people to understand who he is. Romans 9.33 talks about Jesus as being a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. His whole purpose in this world is not to be popular, but to draw people to himself. John 3.17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that they might be saved through him. That's his purpose. Um, Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now that, that title, that, that phrase, the Son of Man, the same 
title he uses back here in Matthew 16 when he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's his most often used title for himself. 84 times throughout the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And at, at this point in Matthew, Matthew 16, he's already used that phrase of himself 10 times, the Son of Man. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, an interesting word, an interesting phrase. There's a, a dichotomy that is there speaking of his humanity and yet of his, his deity. And so I just want to read a few of those verses for you where he uses this phrase, the Son of Man. In 820, he says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You can definitely see the, the humility in that, the, the humanity in that, that God incarnate has no place to lay his head. 9.6, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's definitely a, an aspect of his deity, right? No, no mere man has the authority to forgive sins, but the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. The Son of Man is coming again, chapter 10, verse 23. 12.8 says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, speaking to, to his deity. Um, this, this name really is derived from the Old Testament. Back in Daniel chapter 7, um, we'll see that this, this title is used, the Son of Man. It's a, a beautiful passage. Daniel 7.13 and 14 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented to him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. And all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. So again, not just the Jews, but uh, that's uh, another little glimpse into the fact that salvation is for Gentiles. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So again, this phrase, son of man, means more than just a man, but it speaks to his deity as well. A uh, couple other places we see this. Um, in 1232, whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it shall be forgiven him. What mercy, what compassion. Again, that the all-knowing, all-loving God of the universe would show this grace to people. 1240, just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will spend three days in the, the heart of the earth. Again, that is the ultimate display of humility that God took on flesh and, and he became a man. That is Philippians 2, humility and, and love for, for neighbor, love for another. That is something that we should um, recognize as amazing, but it speaks to his humanity. And then in chapter 13, speaking of the, the parable of the seed and the soils, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And it's the Son of Man in 1341 who sends forth his angels to gather, the, to gather out of his kingdom the lawless sinners. He's the one who's sending forth the angels. He's the one who's, who's saying what needs to happen. He's the one who's calling the shots. He's the boss. He's in charge. And we definitely see that in this phrase, the Son of Man. One of my favorite passages is in Luke 11. And in this passage, we see that Jesus is just 
really berating the Pharisees and saying, woe to you, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites, you're a brood of vipers, whoa, 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 watch out, pretty much. And then down in verse 45 and 46, one of the lawyers raises his hand, so to speak, and said to him in reply, teacher, when you say this, I, I, I don't know if you realize this, but you're insulting us too. And then Jesus said, woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves do not even touch the burdens with a finger. That's who the Son of Man is. He's not one who's going to sit back and wait for somebody else to tell him what to do. He's the shot caller. He's the one who's in charge. And now he's, this, he's asking his disciples, these people who know him best, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Back in chapter 16, verse 14, we see the response from the disciples. They said, well, Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or, or one of the prophets. And while we recognize that this isn't the response that everybody had, that's not who everybody thought that Jesus was. Remember, some thought that he was a glutton or a drunkard. Others said that he cast out demons by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebub. He was casting out Satan. And Jesus says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But overall, this seems to be the perception of who Jesus was. He was maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah. He was one of the prophets. And there are some things that we can glean from this really kind of flattering response of who Jesus is. First of all, we see that people recognize his holiness. People recognize that he was different. He was set apart. And while not everybody understood his true identity, even these people who didn't know who he was, knew there's something different. There's something unique about this, this Jesus character. And they recognized his holiness. We also see from this response their real lack of Old Testament understanding. The fact that they didn't see that the Messiah was coming. Just as we saw back in the first part of Matthew 16, when Jesus rebuked them and said, you can't even discern the signs of the times, but you can discern the weather. Um, this same kind of mentality, this ob oblivious understanding of the Old Testament is seen in this response. That they didn't know that he was a Messiah, that he was actually there, that he was the one prophesied back in Deuteronomy 18 who was going to be one who was greater than, than Moses, who was going to be speaking on behalf of God. They didn't realize the, the voice of God when it was being spoken to them through God himself. They didn't recognize prophecies like Micah 5.2 that said, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from everlasting to everlasting, from the days of eternity. Completely blanked on them, completely spaced on them. Again, looking at, at Daniel, the timing, the particular timing that Daniel provides in chapter 9. He says in 9.25, so you are to know and to discern. Those words should have caught their attention. Pay attention. You guys are to, to figure this out. Know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. And then it goes on to talk about how to, to 
discern that and how to differentiate that, but they had precise timing. They should have known that Jesus was there. The Magi knew that Jesus was there, and they went to, to go and worship him because they had a, a solid understanding of the Old Testament. Um, but, but these people who were claiming, oh, maybe he's John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah, again, they recognize his holiness, but they didn't have a, a good doctrinal understanding of the Old Testament. Um, but ultimately, that's because these guys weren't spiritually enlightened. Glance with me down to, to 17. We're going to jump out of order a little bit here. But in 17, after Peter gives his, his great declaration of who Jesus is, it says that Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter was spiritually enlightened. God opened up his eyes. God gave him the ability to see. God granted regeneration to him that he would be reborn and have that ability to know who God is, whereas these people clearly were much more in line with those who are described in Ephesians 4.18 that says that the Gentiles who walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them, because of the hardness of their hearts. They haven't been given... Uh, a heart of flesh. They haven't been given that, that new heart, that new life, that new regeneration that was clearly given to, to Peter here in verse 17. And so this, this question of who do people say that I am, clearly Jesus knew the answer to that, that question. Jesus knew the answer to both questions. Jesus is omniscient. He is all-knowing. All um, there's nothing that he doesn't know. He's not surprised by their answer. He's not asking them so that he can gain some kind of information for himself that he didn't have before. This is a, a leading question. Jesus is trying to, to draw the minds of the disciples to a certain place, to a certain point, so that he could really ask this, this question that he wants to ask of, who do you say that I am? Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. John 10 says that, his sheep know him, and they hear his voice, and they will respond to him. So Jesus isn't unaware that these people don't know who he is. He's working on the disciples, and he wants them to really think, okay, and to see that contrast. These people say this about you, Jesus. Now Jesus turns, and he asks, okay, well, who do you personally, individually, who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, and he said, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And in my Bible, it doesn't have an exclamation point, but I have no doubt in my mind that, that Peter said that in an uh, exclamatory way. I wrote an exclamation point in my Bible. Even if he wasn't shouting or yelling, just the words alone, that simple declaration, that proclamation that Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. That has such weight, such heaviness to it that it has to have an exclamation point after it. Um, to realize that he is the fulfillment of everything that people throughout all of history have been waiting for, have been hoping for, since back in Genesis 3, the fall of, of man, when God had promised to them a redeemer who would come and crush the head of the serpent who would, who would hurt him, but to no avail. Um, from, from Exodus, seeing Moses 
being pictured as this deliverer who would deliver his people. Um, this promise that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that he would bless the world through him. That's fulfilled through the Messiah. All the way back then was looking forward to, to Jesus, to the Messiah, who, again, was pictured in, in Joseph and how he preserved Israel and, and protected Israel through that drought, through that famine. Uh, all those years of captivity where Israel was taken off to, to Egypt or to Assyria or to Babylon, and those nights when you could just imagine a, a father sitting down and telling his kids, it's okay, the Messiah is going to come. God has promised us a redeemer. God has promised us the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to deliver us from his people. God is good. God is faithful. He has promised this and it will happen. All throughout the, the prophets who are prophesying, you need to turn, you need to repent because the Lord is, is coming. He will judge the Messiah is coming. And now Peter stands up and he says, Jesus, that's you. You are that Messiah. You are that Christ. You are that anointed one. And you are here. And you are the son of the living God. And lest we, we think that for him to, to declare that Jesus is the son of God, let's draw our minds back to John. And whenever Jesus said in John chapters 5 and chapter 8 and chapter 10 that he himself was the son of God. It wasn't received as him saying that he was anything less than God, but people thought, you're, you're blaspheming when you say that you are the son of God because you were making yourself equal with God. And they picked up stones to stone him because they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. He was making himself equal with God. He was saying, I am God. And they understood that in exactly the way that he had meant them to understand it. In John 14, 9 and 10, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father also. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you believe that I, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? They are one. Jesus is God and he's not claiming to be anything less than God. Peter, in his great declaration here, isn't claiming that he is anything less than God. He is saying, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You have complete equality with the Father. In Philippians 2.6, we read that Jesus was the very form of God, the very nature of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the exact representation of the nature of God. Colossians 2.9 says that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him, all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth. All things have been created through him and for him. Nothing has been created without him. He is divine. He is God. And we have to have that understanding, that recognition of Jesus and his identity as God. Masses of, of people, portions of our society today have a watered down view of who Jesus is. Um, they have embraced a, a popularized view of who Christ is, that he was you know, maybe he was a nice guy, but he wasn't God. Maybe he was a, a good teacher, but he wasn't God. Maybe he was uh, a prophet even, but he wasn't God. We could, we could go out and we could proclaim all day long that Jesus was a prophet without offending people. Masses of the world's population could agree with the fact that Jesus was a prophet. But Jesus was the prophet. Jesus was 
the Christ. Jesus is God, and we have to make that distinction. We have to make that differentiation because not to do so is right on par with those people who were in Caesarea Philippi who are worshiping Caesar, who are worshiping Echo and Pan and, and other idols. If we don't set apart Jesus as God, as the one and only God, as a true deity, as the way, the truth, and the life, then we have created a God of our own understanding. And to worship him is going to land us directly in hell. And while we have a, a tendency to avoid this question in our own hearts, in our own minds, I want to, to set this before you today in a, a very straightforward way. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? And if you say that he is anything less than God, that should be concerning. Because Peter declares he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Not a Son of God. He is the Son of God. And if we are to deny this fact, if we are to deny the Lordship of Christ, then we have no part in him. We have no portion of him if we don't declare that he is Lord, that he is King, that he is the one who owns and rules our lives. The deity of Jesus is the foundation of the church. And if you deny that, then then you are not a part of his church. You are not a part of his bride. You are not in Christ. And that needs to change if you want to spend an eternity with him rather than under his wrath, under his judgment. And so let me just close by, by reminding you of that and by letting you know that in order to join the, the church of Christ, the true church, his church, that we must proclaim that he is God, that he is good, that he is righteous, and we are not. Let us not be like those who just say, yeah, Jesus, you are, you're a prophet. You're like, maybe, maybe you're Elijah. Maybe you're John the Baptist. Jesus is completely unique. He's completely set apart. And once again, how we understand Jesus has eternal ramifications. Who we understand Jesus to be has not only eternal results, but it affects our day-to-day -day living. And those of us who are in Christ can not only know that we're going to be with him for all of eternity, but we can know that he's in control. And that even now in, in the midst of weird things in 2020, he's in control. He's the one who is pulling the strings. He's the one who offers us peace and comfort and hope and rest. He is our peace, our comfort, our hope, our rest. If you guys have any thoughts or any, any doubts about who Jesus is, please reach out and, and let us know because there is no more important thing even than our own identity, than the identity of Christ and who we understand him to be. Let's pray. God, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we praise you and we thank you for that. We thank you that you have revealed that to us through your holy word, through the prophets that you carried along by the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to boldly proclaim that, that we wouldn't shy back, that we would be bold in letting people know that our God, our Jesus is set apart. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher, but he is God. God, I pray that you would be with 
each person in, in our body this week, that you would encourage them in a special way, that you would give them a, a special dose of grace, and that when we come back together next week, the fellowship would be sweet, and we would do so under the, the banner of Christ, under the headship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. pray this in your name. Amen.